Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. SCP-001, Amani Ram, Part 2. A city discovered in the desert contains relics from a past civilization. While that's a simple enough premise, one even grounded in reality, the discoveries that the Foundation has made in the lost city of Amani Ram are truly startling. The people that lived there, the Mechanites, were dealing with massive mechs and cold fusion reactors at a time when most of the world was just figuring out basic technology. Doctors Aram and Nussbaum were sent in to try and figure out what happened here and the extent of their technology, but as usual, the rabbit hole continues to get deeper. Let's continue. When we last left off, Dr. Robert Aram had just finished using the throne in the center of the city for the first time, allowing him to revisit memories from Emperor Bumaro's past. A week later, he volunteered to use the throne once more, citing his quick recovery and how much information they could glean from the past. Dr. Nussbaum and her team have figured out a rough chronology of the cylinders, so she wants to try and test one from roughly the middle to try and see if they can learn more about the Nalka and the Davites before the chaos of war. Aram says that he can't control what he sees, but Nussbaum suggests that he probably can, as the throne wouldn't be that useful if future generations couldn't specify what they wanted to learn. That being said, she has no idea how he can control it, so he's thrown in blind once again. The memory begins in a stone city in the desert, but it isn't a money Ram. Aram deduces that it's along the Nile River, and that he's actually in the city of Thebes in Egypt. He's Bumaro once again, sitting at the head of a caravan of large, beetle-like automatons. They arrive in the city and meet with the pharaoh, whom they exchange gifts with. Soon they dismiss all of the servants, and the pharaoh asks Bumaro if he can expect his support against the Abominate. Bumaro responds that his army is already spread thin to enforce peace on his land, and he cannot afford to be involved in his affairs. The two begin to argue and shout, with the pharaoh stating that the Abominate is marching on a money rom. He will cut a swath through Egypt and stack their corpses to build a bridge across the Nile. Bumaro refuses to help and leaves, with Aram asking why the pharaoh doesn't understand as there are bigger things at stake. The scene shifts to a different throne room, with Bumaro facing a man in a robe and turban, possibly Arab or Ottoman. The man shakes his head, and the scene shifts again to a tent facing a tribal chief. They're discussing establishing trade routes, selling the fulad, the technology, 
but the chief doesn't want to get involved with the war and risk the Nalka or the Covenant. The scene shifts again to a ruined city surrounded by a jungle on fire. The sun is setting, the smoke's thick in the air, and Bumaro is standing on a bluff in front of his soldiers. The soldiers are lobbing firebombs and mortars into the city and scaling the walls, with Aram commenting that the defenders look almost Indian. There's some kind of ghosts or spirits swirling in the air as well. The soldiers are bringing down the walls and slaughtering the enemy. He looks behind him to see the female general wearing dragon armor, and he gives her a nod. She proceeds to scream and charge down the bluff, the giant metal armor suit leading the charge as they shatter the enemy line. The general holds up her sword as lightning strikes it, and the battle becomes a massacre. Later, Umaro is in the city itself on his mount, surveying the ruins. He looks to the general and sees himself reflected in her helmet, no more than 25 years old. He sees survivors crawling across the dirt, and the general steps on one's head, causing some sort of flame spirit to burst out along with the man's brains. Nussbaum asks Aram to focus on a money Ram, and soon he's back there, standing in the palace. He sees that the city is militarized, with guards in the streets and turrets on the walls. He's speaking to an engineer, asking if Mekane's kiss is ready. The engineer feels confident about it, and the Undercity has been retrofitted to fit all of the components. He then sees in the distance gigantic mechs, 200 feet tall, with four legs and two arms. He can see three of them, enforcing a perimeter around the city, and Aram says that this isn't a war, it's an apocalypse. Nosbaum says that it's probably time to take a break, so they unplug him from the throne. She then asks him when he learned to speak Mechanite and Egyptian, but he has no idea. Afterwards, research began to take a special priority on war records and weapons technology that may have been left behind. Over the course of the following weeks, records of manufacture and shipment for thousands of ammunition and supplies were translated, revealing a scale of war production previously considered impossible in antiquity and rivaling the war output of developed nations in the modern era. Additionally, the mentions of Mekane's kiss and it possibly being an extremely powerful superweapon incited a new flurry of research into the components and devices in the Undercity. One of the engineers investigating Mekane's kiss writes a memo to Dr. Aram discussing the findings. It reads, I understand you're recovering from extended experimentation with the throne. Not to disturb your rest, but the team thinks we've come up with a solid theory on what the device under the city, the Mekane's Kiss, is. Just some background context. Some of the geologists that came in during a second wave of personnel made some interesting but, at the time, irrelevant discoveries amounting to the revelation that the sand within SCP-001 is of a slightly different chemical composition to the sand outside it. 
The sand inside is more similar to a kind of white sand found in a section of the Arabian Desert, several hundred miles the northeast. We didn't know what to make of it, but the recent research into the Undercity has changed things. We've mapped out the whole device. It occupies 65% of the Undercity's volume. Practically everything is connected to it that isn't stuff like the sewers. Its components have also become more understandable with our new experience on mechanite design architecture and philosophy. The technology is antiquated, but it's almost all paratech. Extremely powerful conduits, converters, connections, etc. All terminating in a small chamber emitting extremely high levels of radiation. We sent a protected probe in, boarding it. It melted a few minutes later, but we ran the pictures and energy signals against the database and got… nothing. We've never seen anything like it. But then, TENS decided to call in a few favors and run it against the GOC database. Apparently they have seen something like it, and tried to weaponize it. A long distance, large scale matter D slash reconstructor and emitter. A gigantic teleporter, basically. Apparently big enough to move an entire city hundreds of kilometers. Mekane's kiss isn't a super weapon, it's a Hail Mary. Unfortunately, it's completely burned out. It'd require a team months to get it back into remotely working order, and that's ignoring the problem of power. It's way too demanding to pull from the city's power grid. We think it draws directly from the cold fusion reactors, which is another impossibility. Plus, we still don't know how it was controlled, or how any of the computation works without… well, computers. In any case, I don't think a money rom will be teleporting anywhere soon. We're then provided another translated document from the city, which reads, And in the 60th year of the war, as the fighting reached a crescendo and Thamud burned with the shelling of the Legion on the flesh hordes of the Nalka, the Matriarch of the Covenant and the Grand Karsist Ion met under the shadow of night in the black catacombs of Aditum. And there they came to understand a truth. Bitter enemies, though they might be, the flesh of the Nalka and the plants of the Covenant were an extension of each other, both extrusions of the natural world. Evenly matched, neither could truly destroy the other. But the Mechanite, Blessed Steel, was something else. A gift from the sky, well capable of crushing each of them. But together, they stood a chance. And such it was, that as the invasion plans were drawn, and the great siege engines were constructed, and the pole arms cooled in the foundries, the Golden Legion marshaled and marched themselves, beginning the long, bloody trek to Aditum. And as they crossed through the desert of Asia, the Nalka were lending their forces to another invasion, this one raised by the Sorcerer Nawabs with the Deva against Amani Ram. A black, wicked army secretly gathering in the jungles of the south, marching on the suddenly vulnerable first Ram of the Mechanites. 
and with them came the magics. The Nalka offered one of their greatest boons, a plague to infest the city, and the Covenant offered the Song of the Deva to make the verdant greenery of the desert rebel against its masters. And even then, their marshaled forces were not enough to dominate the Colossi and take the city. But in the far west, beyond the gate, another storm was brewing. The Abominate, may his name never be spoken of, stood on the shores of the coast as the damned fleet disembarked from their massive ships, and his army assembled itself from his prisoners and his soldiers, and the march to the east to Amaniram began. The city settled between two unstoppable forces, neither aware of the other's presence, as the two armies pushed to the walls of the city and the head of its king, queen, and general. So, as the Mechanite army marched on Adytum, the capital city of the Sarkites, the newly formed coalition of the Sarkites and the Davites marched on a money rom. The Sarkites provided a plague to infest the city, which could very well have been SCP-610, or any other number of Sarkite anomalies, and the Davites provided some of their anomalous mastery over botany. They still couldn't take the city though, until the city was besieged on the other side by a separate force, led by the Abominate. Who or what the Abominate is remains to be seen, but their true name has been completely stricken from the record. Another meeting with O5-11 was scheduled to discuss the new discoveries, but the day before the meeting, an unidentified aircraft was detected near the city. The plane was radioed for identification as it approached, and it responded with valid Overwatch command credentials. It ended up landing, allowing O5-11 to disembark, accompanied by MTF Alpha-1, Red Right Hand. Nussbaum and Aram rushed to the city to greet him, surprised that he would make a personal visit to the city. Eleven says that he's heard so many great things about this city so far that he had to see it for himself. He admits that it does look a lot nicer now that they've started to rebuild it. Aram tells him that they've managed to get primary power back online, along with the train system and the climate control. They're working on getting the weaponry back online soon as well. O5-11 asks Nussbaum about the recent breakthroughs in relation to the throne, which Aram is the primary test subject for. Aram responds that they've done a dozen tests since they discovered it, while only a handful have turned up anything substantial. It's mostly fragmented memories from old kings, either the streets filled with citizens or visions of battlefields. Nussbaum says that they've translated over a hundred tablets so far, but most are simple correspondence. The recent ones, however, have been far more interesting, and the group heads to Nussbaum's office to examine them. O511 comments that he expected more of a sparse military setup here, but she seems quite comfortably set up. Since they've been here now for nearly a year, they've had plenty of time to settle in. 
Nussbaum says that they've made great strides recently in determining the fate of Amani Ram and the Mechanite culture at large, thanks to the translations, the throne, and some limited help from Preserver. It's been established that the Davites hail from the Indian subcontinent, and the Nalka are likely from Central or East Asia. The later records however mention a fourth party, the Abominate, and so far they know practically nothing about them, only that they possessed a fleet of seafaring vessels, and likely hailed from West Africa. 0511 finds it a little hard to believe that an army crossed the entire breadth of the Sahara 4,000 years ago, but it's hardly the strangest thing they've encountered here. Nussbaum also says that they have reason to believe that the Gobi Desert was a significant theater in the First War, suggesting that the three primary cultures had some experience warring in deserts. 0511 asks why they don't include the Abominate as one of the primary cultures, and Nussbaum says that they're not even sure if they're human yet, let alone a distinct culture group. The Aegean tablets that led them here didn't mention any fourth party in the First War, but some colleagues of hers researching the mundane Thamud culture in the northwest recently unearthed a trove of tablets. They apparently detail a cataclysmic battle between four armies for control of a major city. They're hoping to have full translations ready within the month, but so far they believe that the Abominate was the main reason that the city itself fell not the Nalka and Davite coalition. This worries 0511, but there's nothing they can do now but wait for the translations. Moving back to Aram, he says that they've discovered a lot of military weapons, ranging from polearms and swords to what seem like primitive chainsaws, to long-range shoulder-mounted mortars and elephant guns. They've also found a few interesting things in the Undercity, such as a few suits of functional power armor, which enhance strength, speed, durability, power, and some of them are even flight capable, but none of them are usable without the Mechanite implants to link to. A few days later though, Preserver directed them to another chamber in the Undercity, filled with assembly lines, industrial sections, and crates filled with mechanite implants. These implants included foulade and steel bionic arms, legs, prosthetics, torso cages, heads, and of course sensory implants, just like foundation ones. Aram wants to test them on some D-Class. 0511 says that he cannot approve of outfitting D-Class with millennia-old cybernetics and putting them inside of highly destructive mech suits. Aram accepts this, but says that in the meantime, he'd like to see if the city's defensive systems still work, the mechs and gun emplacements. 0511 still doesn't trust the visions completely, and is wary of placing any faith in the technology here. If what Aram says is true though, there's at least two superweapons here that the Foundation could deeply benefit from, the Colossi and the Teleporter. Aram considers correcting 0511 and saying that the Teleporter isn't a superweapon, but instead says that he'll need plenty of supplies, as he wants to bring the cold fusion reactors online. 
This is a big request, and one that Eleven thinks is quite dangerous, as they still don't even know what destroyed the city, and they might end up blowing it up. Aram counters that they've already mastered most of the tech they've discovered, and they have Preserver to assist them. Discovering the city's defenses and how effective they are is crucial to getting an accurate image of the battle. Aram asks Nussbaum to back him up on this, and although she hesitates, she does support it. Eleven says that if both of them are in agreement, he can make it happen, but tells them to be safe and to not take any needless risks. Sometime later, Aram writes in his personal log, discussing their progress with the cold fusion reactors. It reads, Progress on rebuilding the cold fusion reactors is progressing much, much faster than projections. Normally I'd be worried, but I'm surprisingly calm. It's obvious. Our people are getting familiar with the technology. The Fulad foundries are operating at amazing efficiency. We've worked out how to mold and shape the metal just how we need it, and what last year looked like a bizarre, nonsensical circuit structure and design philosophy now strikes me as beautifully idiosyncratic. A snapshot into a bygone era. I've never really been one for history. More of a STEM type. I never looked down on those that pursued history, I just didn't see the attraction. Machines are in front of you, something tangible you can see and hear and touch and interact with. You can't do that with history. Not really. The Fulad throne, of course, has changed that. I've spent lifetimes of ancient emperors and minutes. It's staggering. The depth of emotion and personality you can feel from only a few choice minutes in someone's body. Their grief, pain, joy, their story. Fascinating stuff. The technology of the throne and any possible side effects remain elusive, but we've been testing it for a few weeks now, maybe a dozen times. And while I'm always tired after, not a surprise at my age, I feel fine otherwise. And now I know Mechanite, Greek, and Egyptian. Go figure. I've gotten a front seat view to the first war, and it is apocalyptic. There's really no other word for it. Gigantic mech suits crushing cities as the sky itself opens up. Spirit demons fighting alongside human compatriots. Metal soldiers charging walls. Insanity. A secret bloody history the world doesn't even remember. But, as with all war, it's not quite so black and white. Being inside Bumaro's, or the various Bumaro's bodies, none of them were tyrants or dictators. Maybe autocrats, but what emperor wasn't? They all wanted to protect their people to raise them to something beyond human. I can't help but sympathize. Nothing impresses onto you the fragility of your body than nearly losing it, but they understood that, 
and actively improved themselves using the bionics and implants. Reach heaven through transhumanism. Speaking of implants and bionics, the cache we discovered some weeks ago along with the Legion armor. 0511 denied D-Class testing. It's frustrating. We can't use the glorious technology here to improve the world. We can't use it to improve ourselves. We can barely use it to improve the damn city. It's devastating, and most of the team agrees with me that we should use it. So we did. I can't use D-Class to test the implants, but using myself is a different matter. The new arm is... wonderful. It's smoother, more responsive, more sensitive and durable, and it doesn't even hurt at the end of the day. I can sleep with it on. 99% of our personnel in Amani Ram are already augmented, so changing out their stainless steel arm for a foulard one or something is no big deal. Why should Five be the only one that reaps the gifts the Mechanites left us? About a month later, Dr. Nussbaum and four members of the archaeological team were excavating a number of mosaics in the Undercity, progressing into an unstable section. The ceiling overhead suddenly gave way, with the archaeological team members escaping largely unharmed thanks to strength-enhancing bionic and cybernetic augments. Unfortunately, Nussbaum sustained severe internal and external injuries, and was rushed into emergency surgery. Her injuries included a shattered collarbone, fractured spine, cranial injuries, and hemorrhaging, so her likelihood of survival was deemed extremely low. Dr. Aram proposed utilizing the mechanite augments to stabilize her and offer her a chance of survival thanks to assistance from Preserver. The medical team agreed, and so after 29 hours, 17 pieces of mechanite technology were implanted across Dr. Nussbaum's body. When she finally awoke 32 hours later, she first whispered for water, and then said that she cannot see. She only remembers the ceiling collapsing, but asks if the archaeological team is okay. Aram says that they made it out fine, but she wasn't so lucky. She then says that she cannot feel her legs or arms, and asks Aram what happened. He explains that she was going to die, so they replaced her shattered body with mechanite prosthetics. Her immune system integrated with them seamlessly, and it was like they came to life, working to repair the damage done. Nussbaum begins to hyperventilate and swear, asking if she looks like a monster now. Aram tries to calm her down, explaining that she would have died, and if she didn't, she would have laid here for three agonizing years to recover, eventually having to relearn how to walk, sit, breathe, all while in pain for the rest of her life. He understands how she feels, that she'll never be the same, but flesh is weak, and with her new body, she'll be on her feet in a week or less. She may not ever be the same, but she'll be better, 
He finishes by telling her to get some rest, and for what it's worth, he doesn't think she looks like a monster. The implants are works of art, with the spine support spread like a pair of wings, making her look like an angel. It ended up taking her two weeks to recover, but her recovery provided the medical team plenty of insight into the enhancements offered by the Mechanite augmentations. They integrated with her immune and nervous systems, offering fine, instinctual control and an increase in healing speed. Due to the relative lightness of the Fulad material, her body mass did not considerably change, but her strength, lift capacity, running speed, pull weight, and a suite of other measurements vastly increased. She also reported significant increases in her sensory ability, well beyond that of her former foundation implants. Finally, the spinal brace and its external portion, a pair of retractable wings, allow her a limited but notable ability to glide on strong updrafts. She eventually declined an offer of a desk position, instead choosing to continue her work as the Amani Ram Project co-lead. Dr. Aram was reprimanded for his unauthorized use of potentially dangerous anomalous artifacts on both himself and a colleague, but he was not given disciplinary action. Part of this was due to Nussbaum's expressed gratitude to him, stating that if she had been conscious, she would have consented to the procedure. The two return to Preserver, who says that it witnessed her accident, and she has its sympathies, but it refers to her as Hedara, Emperor Bumaro's wife. She corrects it, and it pauses for a moment before apologizing. Preserver had helped save her life, and had actually seen the structural failure, but failed to warn her in time. It then refers to her as an impressive sight, as she is the first human it has seen with full augmentations, the way it used to be done. Its memories come closer to returning, and it remembers receiving its first augmentation, its left hand, made of a polished red. Moving on, Nussbaum says that they have nearly exhausted the records and cylinders they've found, and they have not explained what happened to the city after it was marched on by the Nalka, the Davites, and the Abominate. They're hoping that Preserver is able to remember something about the event. Preserver actually does remember something, saying that it remembers gargantuan spirit beasts that dwarfed the Colossi and forced them back. It remembers catapults and trebuchets and great siege engines that pelted the buildings with strange glass projectiles. It remembers their confusion and the plague that swept through their ranks like a wildfire. It also remembers the abominate, lowering the great door to the city with a single spell, and it remembers donning its war armor and leading its liege and his family to safety. It also remembers failing. It has no face or identity to offer for the abominate, just the name, but it sounds like a singularly powerful individual. Aram says that what happened was tragic, but it still doesn't tell them anything they don't already know. Preserver then opens up its left hand, revealing another cylinder, 
made of a rougher metal compared to the delicate ceramic of the others. It says that it has looked unto itself, the hundreds of cubits of inscribed steel and tubes that hold its soul. Its mind is spread across the entire Undercity, and in the deepest reaches of itself, it found a shrine. The shrine contained pieces of war armor, meticulously wrapped and preserved, and within them was this cylinder. The chamber had been sealed for centuries, and Preserver has forgotten why it was there, so they'll have to tell it. Nussbaum takes the cylinder and leaves with it, while Aram stays behind with Preserver. Official audio ceases at this point, but some scientific equipment in the area contained some microphones which picked up some more conversation. This audio was not recovered until several months later, by chance. Preserver tells Aram that he seeks the ability to command change, and he resents the limitation of his station. The Fulad throne was forged from the very first sheets of the metal shorn from Mekane's body, and it's more than a symbol of power, it is an instrument of power. It says that Aram has already noticed how his voice carries weight and how he commands attention. When Aram told Nussbaum to take the cylinder while he stayed behind, she didn't even protest, she simply followed his order. Preserver says that when the throne was forged at the dawn of the era, Bumaro's people bowed to it and spread forth across Asia like a gleaming sword. They laid down their lives for their lord, as the throne contains the power to dominate lesser minds. Every time that Aram sits on it, he invokes the memories, the name, and the power of the kings of old. Aram asks why it's telling him this, and Preserver responds that surely he sees the parallel by now. Time is a flat circle, and it swallows its own tail like a sand serpent. He has seen Bumaro's memories, and he has seen Hadara's wings. Aram turns to leave, saying that this is ridiculous, but Preserver tells him that he seeks to change the world, to make it more accepting of people like himself and her. So did Bumaro. The voice of the Emperor is his now, so he shouldn't squander it. The following day, the team prepares to test the cylinder provided to them by Preserver. Nussbaum tells Aram, however, that she would like to handle this one, as she now has far more mechanite implants than Aram, and they may help her to see more. Aram isn't so sure, as they're an unexpected variable, and they could interact differently, but Nussbaum says that they won't know until they try. Aram still isn't convinced, and Nussbaum asks if he's alright, saying that he's acting strange. But he says it's fine, she can do it, but she should be safe. Nussbaum sits on the throne and activates the cylinder, reacting far less severely than Aram's first time. She says that she's standing on the walls of the city, along with hundreds of soldiers and gun turrets. She can feel herself barking out orders, and the soldiers are obeying, setting up siege engines, loading ammunition, 
evening out the wall. She is wearing elaborate armor and says that she is not a Bumaro, but a woman, olive-skinned and small. She's the female general, and she sees a colossus in the distance, shaking the entire city with each step. It's heading towards the horizon, towards a horde of bodies, armor, banners, and mounts amidst a dust storm. The horde goes as far as the eye can see, and there's nothing they can do to stop their advance. The scene then shifts, showing the city on fire. The sky is red, choked with smog, and all she can hear is the clashing of steel and screaming. She's crouched behind a barricade, and she hears buildings collapsing and mortar fire. The enemy looks like beasts and monstrosities, great masses of flesh and limbs in a sickly pale purple, dragging themselves along. Spirits are in the air, and purple fire covers the walls. She can hear the beating of their drums and their war chants and cannon fire beyond the walls. She can just barely make out the colossi in the horizon through the smoke, and the streets are wet with blood and slime. Now she's standing over the ruins of a house hit by a mortar. There's an object in the center, and when one of the men touched it, it broke open, and his face burst into leaves. There are vines spreading outward from him, creeping from his writhing corpse towards them, It's the petrified plant they found in the Undercity, a biological weapon. They retreat into the Undercity, with the Legion holding the entrances and choke points against the swarms. She's surrounded by death, and she splits a man open, chin to groin, followed by beheading one of the flesh beasts. Blood pools in the golden channels of her sword and splashes across her armor. Aram tells her to focus on the Emperor, and the scene changes to the palace as the city is shaking. The Legion is holding the palace against the Horde, as Bumaro sits on the throne. She tells him that they must leave, as the enemy has taken three of the gates, and they will not have a chance for much longer. Bumaro instead stands up, wearing his war armor, and says that she must go, calling her Shahashna, It's a word they're not familiar with, but seems similar to the words for protect or guard. Bumaro says that she must go and activate the kiss, but the two begin to argue. She says that the kiss is dangerous, and that it has no control mechanism. Bumaro tells her that they have no other choice, and says that he commands it. She bows, and Bumaro says that he will go and seat himself in the courtyard, and this keep will not be breached while he draws breath. She then sees him sitting in the same spot as the statue they found, waiting with sword and spear in hand. Aram realizes that it's not a statue after all. Nussbaum then says that she has left the palace and is now running across the city to the nearest Undercity entrance. Much of the horde has entered the city, and she slaughters as many as she can as she runs. She guts another beast, followed by crushing the skull of a Covenant summoner. 
Finally, she reaches the Undercity and seals the entrance behind her. It's different here, brightly lit and well-signed, although blood plasters the walls and corpses line the passageways. She proceeds deeper and deeper into the labyrinth, encountering the plant virus and the mutated flesh-pod tentacles, alive and throbbing. There are many of their soldiers moving through the Undercity, confused, and there are many families hiding out down here, but she cannot help them. She recognizes the route she's on, and realizes that she is progressing towards Preserver's Chamber under the palace. When she arrives, she finds only masses of machinery, with no Preserver. The room hums with an unfamiliar energy, and there are automata everywhere, maintaining the machine. She seals the chamber behind her, and hears a boom from above, and she begins to strip off her armor. She realizes now what Shahashna means. It means one who guards, a preserver. She reaches out and touches the machinery, and suddenly Nussbaum's eyes begin to glow, and she writhes on the throne, her back arching wildly. When she stops, she says that when she touched the machine, she felt complete agony, like someone was cutting her limb from limb. Now she sees only rubble and debris, with no noise. She is now inhabiting one of the automata, and she emerges back onto the city streets. She finds everyone dead, with not a free patch of dirt to be found as corpses choke the streets. Dead bodies cover every possible surface, ranging from citizens, to mechanite soldiers, to the horde. Nussbaum asks, what has she done? And although Aram says that it's just a memory, she says that she destroyed the Empire, trying to save it. They cut the power to the throne, but nothing happens, until Aram pulls Nussbaum away from it. She thanks him and says that it was overwhelming, but it's no wonder that Preserver cannot remember, as she obliterated her own civilization while trying to save it. She had a taste of that feeling for just a few seconds, but it was too much, while Preserver has lived with that guilt for nearly 3,000 years. Nussbaum guesses that Preserver placed her memories into the cylinder to get rid of them, but now she's forgotten why she did so in the first place. Further testing was temporarily halted until a decision could be made on whether or not to inform Preserver of her past. Aram writes a personal log discussing the decision. It reads, This is ridiculous. Preserver has been integral to the success of the Amani Ram initiative, far more so than any of the O5s arbitrating on whether she deserves to know her own identity. We wouldn't even have the throne if she hadn't led us to it and provided the fist, the cylinders, everything. We owe her. And even if we didn't, it's the right thing to do. Mad scientist is possibly one of the dumbest stereotypes of all time. Scientists have ethics. Even in Prometheus, where progress was done for the sake of progress, we had ethics. Expectations of behavior and morality. Making sure everyone knew exactly what they were signing up for, 
not withholding crucial discoveries fundamental to their sense of being. The Foundation is not scientists, it is bureaucrats, and bureaucrats are the ones who will do away with ethics for efficiency. I shouldn't get this mad, but it just begs so many questions. It's representative of how they think of this project. Not a font of tools to improve the world, but of information that needs to be suppressed and released when the world is ready. Visionaries do not wait for the world to be ready to present their idea, because the world is never ready. We force the world to change. In the 60s, augments were a rarity in the Foundation. Agents who got them were freaks. They were a last resort to maintain functionality. Then they realized we were better, faster, smarter, stronger. And look at us now. A project and two sites staffed entirely by augmented personnel. But they obviously don't trust Preserver, because she's a machine. Even though she's not, really. She was human once, but they can only think of her as a machine, to use, to exploit. The same way they think of me, and Hedvig, and Tenz, and Zaid, and all the others. They don't trust us either. Not really. We've done more for them, and gotten fuck all in return, except the permission to rebuild what has been our home for nearly a year. It's frustrating. I've been thinking about what SCP-001-A1 said. About the throne. It's not true. There's no paratechnology that can force a psychic connection. That would require a staggering amount of power and all sorts of bullshit. But it makes me wonder. I've been probing Nussbaum, seeing if she responds like Preserver said she would. I don't know whether I'm delusional or looking for what I want to see, but I feel like there's something there. She just agrees to whatever. If it is true, and I'm not saying it is, it would logically extend to the others, too. Did they all agree to swapping out their augments with the Mechanite ones because it was what they wanted? Or was it because it was what I wanted them to do? Eventually, the O5 Council decided to allow them to tell Preserver about her part in the siege itself, but to withhold the details of her activation of Mechane's kiss and the destruction of the city. Nussbaum and Aram head back to Preserver, and tell her that they've witnessed the events contained in the cylinder. When Nussbaum says that she was the one to use the throne, Preserver remarks on it, but after a pause, says that it isn't a problem. Nussbaum says that they encountered the memories of a female general in the Legion, likely favored by Bumaro due to their close personal relationship. They tell her that they saw the city besieged by a united force of the Nalka and the Covenant of the Deva, as well as an appearance by the Abominant. The Mechanite Legion was away, marching on Adatum at the time, and so the Colossi and Home Army were not enough to defend the city. 
Preserver asks if she served her empire, and Aram says that she did, as she was instrumental in the defense of the city. He goes on to say that she tried to evacuate Bumaro and Hadara, but he sent her away on a different mission. Nussbaum is worried that he's going to ignore the O5 directive, but he tells Preserver that she was told to hold the North Gate at all costs to give the civilians a chance to escape the destruction. As the horde swept over the walls and slaughtered everything in their path, she held the gate against a thousand and thousand more sorcerers, and spirits, and flesh beasts, and she's the only reason that some people escaped the massacre. Preserver is shocked to hear that Mechanites still walk the earth today, and thanks Aram and Nussbaum for revealing this. We're then provided an email that was left unsent, written by Nussbaum to a colleague. In the email, she writes that she has some concerns about her project co-lead, Dr. Aram. She admits that he possesses a once-in-a-lifetime mind, but recent events have made her question his position, worrying that he has let his emotions compromise the integrity of the project. He made an unconsensual medical decision on her behalf. He's augmented himself with experimental technology, and utilized experimental anomalous technology to further research. He engaged in an argument with an O5, referred to a sapient anomaly by name, has spent long periods of time alone with this anomaly, has spent long periods of time alone with experimental technology attempting to deconstruct it, has focused research in strange directions averse to the goals of the project, and has demanded an additional level of dedication and respect from employees to the project and himself. As mentioned, the email was never sent, with only the draft found later. On the same day that this email was drafted, an audio file was recorded from a hidden recording device in Nussbaum's office. Aram had entered into her office at night, and muses how much Amani Ram looks like a proper city now. He had just been tinkering with the throne, based on some things the Preserver told him. There's some latent psychokinetic energy emanating from it that has been getting stronger with every use of the throne. He looks out the window at the city, saying that they've built something grand out here and he's not sure how he's going to go back to bunking on site dormitories after this. He then tells her that he thinks they need to shift gears a bit, in terms of what they're focusing on here. They should begin focusing more on the weapons and technology used during the siege to figure out the enemy forces that attacked, and put the mundane archaeology aside for a little while. This upsets Nussbaum, who retorts that the mundane archaeology has already led them to breakthroughs on the technology, and her work is just as important as his. He agrees, but she doesn't believe him, stating that he only sees the history and culture as a means to an end, and cannot understand why someone would want to study it for its own sake. Despite his claims that he respects her and her work, she continues, 
wondering why he feels he can come in here and tell her what her team should focus on, and why he thinks he can make decisions about her body for her. He doesn't regret saving her life though, and says that this argument is obviously about something bigger. She doesn't dispute that she's thankful for saving her from dying, but she doesn't owe him anything. Aram responds that he's the leader here, so everyone here owes him. If it wasn't for him, this project would have been shuttered months ago. Everyone else here looks up to him for the risks he's taken, so why doesn't she? Nussbaum says that they are friends, and she doesn't look up to friends, they are equals. Aram's voice suddenly changes and booms out, stating that kings don't have equals. He continues by saying that her work has been secondary, and she is secondary. The purpose of the initiative was to find the technology of the Mechanites, and their history was ancillary. They have a living archive of their history now, so the directive of the project has changed. Nussbaum hazily asks what's happening, seeming to be semi-conscious, and Aram tells her not to resist him. She felt its presence when she sat on the throne, as they have now drawn the attention of something larger than them. Its eyes have settled onto them for the past year, but now they have its name, the Abominate. Nussbaum, on the verge of tears, tells him that he's scaring her. He responds that she should be more scared of other things, like that unsent email on her laptop. He tells her not to ask how he knows, as it's not her place, but she should delete it. After a short pause, he booms out again that she should delete it, and the sound of a keyboard is heard. Afterwards, he says that she has played the role quite well, but she feels it watching them too. She admits that she felt… something, and he says that there are bigger things at stake now, and she will obey him. Sometime later, Aram meets privately with Preserver, who says that she can sense that he has used the voice, a booming command that demands obedience. Aram says that even if he has, he hasn't made anyone do anything that they wouldn't have done anyway. Preserver says that she makes no judgement, as this was not an unintended result. She asks him what he's used it for, and he says that he's just explored the limits of it, to see how it works. Preserver knows that he came here to discuss something else though, and Aram asks if Hadara loved Umaro. Preserver says that of course she did, and she was his most favored wife, mother of his heir. She was pure, rising above the horizon with the sun, and she attended to him until he was unable to speak, or breathe, or eat. When he faded, she called upon his wisdom while her son grew into the throne. Preserver asks him if he has made her his queen, and he supposes so, although he wouldn't use the word queen. Preserver wonders why not, as surely he can see the parallels, 
that time is a flat circle. Aram says that he is not a king, but Preserver says neither was Bumaro until he was given a city of people that needed guidance. They were simple farmers before, but Mekane's arrival turned them into a king and queen, their home into a bastion, and their kin into the pinnacle of humanity. The people of Amani Ram were not different because of the augmentations, but instead they chose to be different, and chose to elevate themselves because they were dissatisfied with the way things were. Dissatisfaction is the mother of ambition, and the coal that fuels the fire. There is no shame in dissatisfaction with this form, and we should strive to improve ourselves, as the flesh is weak. They improve Mekane by collecting her component parts scattered to the winds, and they improve their bodies by replacing their frail limbs and senses. In doing both, they improve their souls, and in this way, they do not change the world around them, but improve it. Aram then admits that he lied to Preserver, but she says that she already knew. She served her liege honorably for a lifetime and more, and she can see his face in Aram's. She can see the lines of worry, and knows that he was holding back the truth. She did not save this city. Aram says that Bumaro told her to go and activate Mekane's kiss, but she says that's impossible, as it was unfinished and would have destroyed the city. Aram says that the city was destroyed, but she says that she couldn't have activated it as there was no control interface. Aram tells her that Bumaro gave her something, a blessing, that she drank and touched the machinery, fusing with it somehow. She became the control mechanism and fired it, teleporting the city from the Sinai to the Arabian Desert, killing everyone inside of it in the process. Preserver falls silent for several moments, and eventually says that with her metal mind, she should be able to process anything, but not this. She was a general of the Golden Legion, and she damned her city and her people. She says that she is at the center of her own hell, but Aram's voice suddenly booms out again, telling her to listen. He tells her that she failed and could not save the city, and because of her, it collapsed into devastation and disrepair, disappointing her once and future masters. But it's not too late, and they can still fix it and bring back a money rom. He asks her what she's prepared to give up, and after a slight pause, she responds with everything. Sometime later, another update meeting was scheduled with 0511, following a general decrease in quantity of technology and archaeological reports being transmitted. 0511 comes to Aram's office and tells him that he's worried about the pace of reporting from both him and Nussbaum. He's starting to think that the project has run its natural course, but Aram argues that there's still so much more to decipher here about their history and culture. 
0511 wonders why he's suddenly interested in those things, and says that it's always been about the technology here. Aram has done his job phenomenally, and they've had Foundation researchers poring over every report to see how they can put it into practice. Aram says that that's just the Foundation, but 0511 says that they have a responsibility to maintain normalcy. They already have people in India and China looking around for the locations of the other two cities, and it's time to move on from a money rom. The personnel here will be reassigned to any project of their choosing with glowing recommendations, but Aram asks what if they'd rather stay here, as many won't want to leave. Eleven says that he can't presume to speak for everyone, but Aram says that he's their leader, and they look up to him. Eleven tells him that either way, they won't have much say in the matter, and the rest of the council agrees with him. Aram, however, says no, he's not going, as a money Ram was lost once because of people who didn't understand what it had to offer, and he's not going to let that happen again. He's not some dog that the council can shove around from project to project. 0511 asks if he's forgotten who he's talking to, as he can have him terminated. But Aram says that maybe that's true out there, but not here, in his city. The bodyguards with 0511 raise their rifles at Aram, but he uses his booming voice to command them to lower their weapons, which they do. He says that a money Ram has far too much to offer to throw it away, used and spent. He commands 0511 to go to the council and tell them that the project will continue. Eleven simply responds that he has an inch-thick telekill plate in his cranium, which prevents any sort of psychic influence, and orders his guards to kill him. As the guards raise their guns again, they're each shot in the back of the head by a number of cloaked soldiers the tactical response team that are now utilizing mechanite technology. Eleven says that Aram can't kill him without signing his own death warrant, but Aram responds that he's not going to kill him, as he's not a monster. Instead, Nussbaum descends from above, wearing the intricate war armor as seen in the visions, and she glides down to a soft landing, wielding a curved golden sword. Aram tells her to take 0511 and toss him out of the city, to let him run back to the council. Eleven says that he's insane, as no one can take on the foundation and win. Aram says that he's not a supervillain, he has no interest in destroying the foundation. He's just an engineer that sees a problem on the horizon. He needs to act before the Foundation gets all of them killed. With that, Nussbaum grabs Eleven and flies him out of the city. An Overwatch Command emergency session was called to address the events in a money rom, and they took to vote on whether or not to scramble several task forces in the region and use military force to regain control of the city. Nine of the thirteen council members voted yes on the issue, 
with even the administrator of the foundation chiming in to agree as well. A task force consisting of three MTFs, Nine-Tailed Fox, Hammer Down, and the Mole Rats were sent in, totaling 83 personnel equipped with small and heavy arms and in armored personnel carriers. At the entrance to the city, they find a curved sword impaled into the sand, with one member commenting that Aram is not very subtle. Suddenly, Aram's voice comes over their radios, telling them to stay back, and that they're on the same side. Overwatch Command tells them to continue, however, and they see a number of figures standing along the massive walls of the city. Several more figures are flying overhead, dipping and swerving through the air. Aram's voice then booms on their radios, commanding the MTFs to hear him. They all become dazed momentarily, and Aram says that he made a mistake with 0511, and he's learned since then. The MTFs change the frequencies of their radios and cut Aram off, continuing forward towards the city. The figures on the walls can now be seen to be armed with a mixture of swords, pole arms, and long-range rifle-like weapons, all pointed at the advancing force. The MTF tells Command that these are unfavorable conditions for a firefight, but they continue forward. Aram's voice is heard again, mixed with static, and he explains that they found another cylinder after Eleven was kicked out, inside of the statue's hands. It's Bumaro's last testament, and he begs them to stand down, as they don't understand the threat of the Abominate. It's not a person, it's a force of nature, like a hurricane. They cannot fight it, and they need him. The MTF tells him that they'll place him and Nussbaum into custody, and then they can plead their case to the council. Aram says that bureaucrats never listen to the visionaries, and when the MTF gives Aram one last chance to stand down, he refuses. At that point, two dozen figures crest the sand dune from the other side, three to four meters tall in hulking golden exosuits of plated armor. The two in the middle are the largest, with one being intricately designed, piloted by Aram, and another appearing to be made of stone, holding a sword and spear. Aram says that they might not listen to reason, but they will not stop him from changing the world and saving it. When this is over, they will beg him for his help. Cannon fire begins to rain down on the MTFs as they dive for cover and return fire at the warsuits. The warsuits use a mix of brute strength and oversized ranged weaponry to break the MTF's line, although automatic cannons from the APCs have considerable effect on destroying the warsuits. The reactor cores from the fallen units eject, however, causing miniature explosions. Aram booms out at his soldiers to not fail their king but gradually the superior maneuverability of the MTFs begins to turn the tide. They lose some personnel in the process, but manage to wreck or disable a similar number of the warsuits. Overhead, a number of the flying mechanites begin to dive-bomb the soldiers, grabbing them and pulling them into the air, 
Moments later, however, an anti-aircraft emplacement begins firing, sending a number of the flying units crashing to the ground. Nussbaum is one of the flying individuals, however, and proves to be considerably faster and more evasive than the others. Aram orders her to pull back and go ensure that Preserver is ready. She rockets away from the scene at extremely high speeds, as Aram picks up a portion of a destroyed warsuit and heaves it at an anti-aircraft emplacement, crushing it and its operator. The rest of the warsuits begin to pull back towards the city. The MTFs continue to fire on them, but then the ground begins to shake under their feet. Aram commands the Colossus to hear him and to defend its city. Suddenly, a massive hand reaches out of the sand, followed by another, with its fingers wrapping around the wall of the city. A metal golem, easily a hundred meters tall and covered in auto turrets, drags itself out of the sand and turns to face the Foundation soldiers. The MTFs immediately begin to panic and Overwatch Command orders a tactical retreat, telling them that heavy armament and air support has been scrambled and is waiting outside of the entrance to the reality bubble. The Colossus, however, takes a single step and crushes a number of both Foundation and Mechanite personnel. Several buildings in the city shake from the impact, and Aram raises his sword to the sky, saying that this is how it should be. Nussbaum then reappears, perching herself on Aram's shoulder, and tells him that they are ready. The Colossus continues to move towards the Foundation personnel, who fire rockets and machine guns at it, to no effect. Aram comes in again over their radios, and says that they didn't accept his help. They used and threw away this city, but Aram saw something beautiful in it, and brought it all back to life. He will protect the world from the Abominate on his own terms, as the Foundation is a relic. If the human race is to survive what is to come, they will need to adapt, to change, and to improve. He says that his name is Robert Bumaro, and the world will change for the Church of the Broken God, because it has no choice. Following this, a massive power surge fried the electronics of a waiting aircraft three kilometers away. All communication in and out of the reality bubble ceased, and subsequent investigation indicates that the reality bubble no longer exists in the South Arabian desert. It's theorized that they activated Mekane's kiss, teleporting the city elsewhere. Overall, the events in Amani Ram have resulted in the Foundation raising their global threat level, now at a point where there is considerable potential to disrupt the general population. Foundation policy regarding digital and paratechnological implants and equipment has been frozen, pending further review by Overwatch Command. The Church of the Broken God has been designated as a group of interest and all efforts are to be made to locate Robert Aram slash Bumaro and Hedvig Nussbaum and bring them into custody. 
Laboratory samples of Davite, Nalkin, and Mechanite biological weapons used in the siege of the city have produced some viable specimens, and have been given provisional SCP designations. These include SCP-610, the flesh that hates, SCP-217, the clockwork virus, and SCP-697, a chemical capable of changing almost any type of solid matter into plant-like organisms. Project Forerunner Triad has been organized to address the consequences of the Amani Ram initiative and report directly to the Council. Ascertaining the locations of the Nalka and Davite capital cities, as well as the identity and nature of the entity known as the Abominate, have all been elevated to global priority level Alpha. The Church of the Broken God has been presented in a number of different ways since their initial conception. They have been seen as mysterious enemies to the Foundation that want to convert the whole world to machines, and on the flip side as unlikely allies that want to save the world from the monstrous threat of sarcasm. Amani Ram presents us a Church of the Broken God that's somewhere in between, I think with them wanting to be on the same side as the Foundation to fight off a greater foe, but also not seen eye to eye with them. The initial inclusion of a new threat, separate from the Sarkites and the Davites, makes this canon even more unique, and time will tell on what exactly the Abominate is. The most fascinating part about this article, however, is the transformation of Robert Aram into Robert Bumaro a figure that's long been associated with running the Church of the Broken God. While it remains to be seen on how exactly good he is, he does at least seem to be earnest in his interests of protecting the people of Amani Ram and defending the world from the Abominate. We are likely going to see more material in this canon, but even on its own, it's a fine reboot of the Mechanites and the Broken Church.